So, Luke, what are you up to today? Uh, mate, I am heading to... Well, firstly, I've got a pretty big day of work ahead of me, but um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be heading down to Melbourne with you as planned. Uh, very disappointed. What's but, come up? Uh, mate, pretty um, uh, left-of-field opportunity, to be honest. Got uh, approached by Ross Greenwood, who most people would know as the money man, I guess. Um, I actually listen to his podcast pretty regularly, his Money News podcast, which is basically just a cut-down version of his radio show, so I listen to that most mornings, actually. But um, he's doing a podcast on small businesses and been invited to represent the staffing industry, in in a way, I guess. Um, So going to do that this afternoon at uh, their headquarters, Macquarie Media headquarters, which should be good fun. Interested to meet Ross, but you've got your podcast that I'm not going to be joining you on, unfortunately, but... Um, equally as excited. Sounds amazing. Yeah, so I'm down to Melbourne where I will be interviewing the outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor, Jess Miller, yep. who's just worked quite hard on a campaign called Sydney Doesn't Suck, which mm-hmm. is for the elimination of plastic straws. And we, along with a couple of other people in the industry, um, took a pretty big stake in making all that happen. Yep. And uh, we'll be talking to her about her uh, background and as it turns out she did kick off in hospitality uh, yeah. and has now ended up as you know, I guess a reasonably high profile activist and Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney uh, quite an amazing story really and that um, I guess it's in Melbourne because the, there's an award up for grabs. yeah yeah that's right so happily it's been nominated for the Food for Good Award at the Good Food Awards. Right. Um, that <laughs> Say that after the dinner tonight. Yeah, so, and um, and I think it's, a, uh, well, whether you win or not doesn't really matter. It's nice to be recognised and hopefully, really, the uh, everlasting effect should just be awareness around sustainability in the hospitality industry, which I think uh, the hospitality sector's got a great opportunity to play a role in yeah. wider sustainability across our culture. Yeah, right. Well, enjoy flying solo. Sorry I can't be there, but um, looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, awesome. Jess Miller, welcome to the Back of House podcast. Thank you, Mike Rodriguez. <laughs> Thanks for having me. How's your weekend? Oh, it's been great. I've, where have I been? I've been everywhere, man. I've been in Nowra. What's going on in Nowra? Shoalhaven Zoo. Best kept secret of the world. They've got lions. They've got monkeys. They've got a wombat. They've even got little chickens that you can hold. And what took you down there? Just a fascination with little chickens and no. lions and what happens when you put them in contact with each other? No, no, no. no it, was, it was partly the berry wine shop, um, but also, no, we're just looking after a mate's place while they're in um, Paris for a while. So they've got pets. We don't. And we've just been hanging with the chickens and the dogs and the cats. Well... And- yeah. Well, thanks for making the effort to get thanks. down here to Melbourne. And we're coming uh, to our audience today from the QT Hotel. Um, and uh, there's a bit of a night coming up um, because some work that you've been doing has been nominated for an award um, mm. at the Good Food Awards. Uh, and I think the award that it's been nominated for is the Food for Good Award. Yeah, try saying that 10 times. Yeah, it's too. very hard. Good Food for Good, Good Food. Yeah, like, come on, guys. There's a, there's a lot of of O's in both of those words. But um, so we'll come to that in a little bit. But um, it's uh, uh, we're talking a little bit earlier about your, um, and for those who don't know Jess, she's the outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney and um, uh, a Sydney City Councillor, I guess, um, and uh, and um, but has been, I get in and around the hospitality space for quite a long time. Um, 
I believe the Ninch was mentioned earlier. Um, do you want to let us know about your first uh, foray in hospitality, uh, uh, wherever you entered it from? Oh, God, yeah. It was... Um, uh it, it was the Ninch, as in the Mornington Peninsula. So I am um, a Melbourne girl, or really, I'm. Let's be honest, I'm from Frankston. So, um, <laughs> which is no, like you know, it's pretty, it's pretty lush down there these days. Um, but yeah, my first job was working at the Willow Creek Winery, which is now Jackalope, and it was a very, very different place back then. So I started on cellar door with this fabulous man called Richard Herr who would make these insane... So one of the owners of Willow Creek at the time, her name was um, Cora. And, and no, Coral, Coral, Coral Noel, Coral Noel. And so Richard was... Like, Richie was a little bit obsessed with her. So we would do things at Celador, like make shrines um, to Coral just because or, you know, start rumours about people's love lives and it was quite involved and quite fantastic and I think as a first and I was crap, I was so crap at making coffees um, to the point where, you know, people would ask me for stuff and I'd be like, I, I would just literally make it up um, and until Marguerite sent me to coffee school and we were good from then. Um, but that was my first job and so I sort of worked my way from cellar door to the coffee machine to um, on the floor at Salix, um, which was it was a hatted restaurant just alongside the winery. Um, so that was that was where it all began. And was this kind of university work for you, or were you drawn into the hospitality world um, for other reasons? Yeah, I think. Well, my mum was a terrible cook, so the fact that you got fed <laughs> was must. awesome. Um, but no, we did. I guess we we had a good relationship growing up with the local restaurants, like Delganis and Hussies and all that sort of stuff. Because um, my man was a herb grower and has like an amazing understanding of knowledge of really unique herbs so it's not like today when you go into Bunnings and there's two types of mints there's literally like 15 type of mints and dad would sort of go and help people with these gardens and talk about what different characters or properties all of these different herbs had so we were exposed to it I guess from that point of view, but it wasn't until, yeah, it wasn't until I was at uni. Um, And when you live in a place that fluctuates because of tourism, that's where the jobs are. Um, And you, if you want to come home, like you're doing that, that's summer, basically. You do the grape picking, um, starts in September and that sort of sorts you out all through that sort of three months worth of, of uni holidays. And I mean, for someone that has, I guess, moved into what would appear to the outsider to be the world of politics, and we know oh, yeah. that I'm not a uh, aficionado with these things, but it's it's some distance from Frankston to uh, to Town Hall <laughs> in Sydney, I would say. Um, I don't know. There's a few similarities between the rotating dance floor of the 21st Century Dance Club and Chambers sometimes. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty far away, um, but also, I think, pretty different. I think... Um, you know, the, the sense of community that you get, that, that is, is part of hospitality, I think is really important. And I guess you always revert back to it. And I also think that often um, in the role that I'm in at the moment, people who work in hospitality are really a little bit underlooked. And it's not always true, I think, that they're 
needs or aspirations or engagement because everyone's working such hectic hours. Um, people don't always know how to be able to make things better. So I think that's sort of like I get it from that point of view. I've, I've been around it a long, long enough to know, um, you know, the fear that a ranger can strike in the hearts when they ask you for a copy of your DA um, from the other side. So, yeah, I guess, does that answer the question? How, I'm not, yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I'm not sure. Because uh, we were talking about some of your journeys and it seems like you've been moving north slowly um, yeah. over a period of, I don't know, maybe eight to ten years, just politely there trying to work out your... Oh, the, oh the, yeah, right, okay. So, yeah, Frankston to Town Hall. No, didn't happen like that. Um, so I was I was in, yep, grew up on the peninsula, nicked off to Sao Paulo straight out of high school, lived there for a while, came back, uh, did, a, did uni um, at RMIT for a year, started working at the vineyard, kind of got jack of it, um, I like I like most people at that age. You don't really know what you want to do, and then I literally closed my eyes on that, you know, that uni guide, and went, "Okay, I'm going to do that." And it was international relations and politics at the ANU, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Anyway, yeah. I followed through. You didn't have a second go. What about this? Oh uh, yeah, I did, but I think <laughs> it was something like dentistry in South Australia, and I was like, oh yeah, that's just not going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think I'd sort of gone, okay, let's let's just give this a go. Um, got up to ANU, and I think literally the first thing I did, like I remember me and my girlfriend Carly driving all night from from like Somerville up to um, Canberra, and the first thing I did was, like, try and get a job because, you know, I just – it's like I've never not had a job. And so when I feel like I've got a job and somewhere to show up, all is well in the world. So I was pretty – I was I had I did my research. I had a list of the restaurants, all the fine dining restaurants that I wanted to work. Um, like most people at uni, you know that you want to get to the place that's going to give you the best tips. Um, it's not always easy being a student. So I'd, I'd sort of come up with a list of places that I wanted to work. And luckily, um, I walked into Atlantic and little did I know it at the time. Um, but I walked in and there was my future husband at the top of the stairs with a bicycle. And I thought, wow, what a guy. He's so fit. Little did I know that he just lost his licence. And he wasn't about to ride the bicycle naughty. downstairs. No, no, no. That would be, I, he kind of looked like he did. But, yeah, he, was, he had heaps of attitude. And I remember thinking, hmm, I'm either going to love him or hate him. Um, but, yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. Spoke to the owner, Dave Wood, um, despite the fact that, like, I, you know, you can kind of blag your way on a resume and he he agreed to give me a trial and I think I, I wasn't great, let's be honest. I wasn't an awesome waiter but I went the extra length to make sure that people – it was a, it's a very peninsular style of hospitality – not very classy, let's be honest. Um, didn't know, you know, I didn't know all of the things. Like I was bloody nineteen. Like, what do you? You don't. You don't know. You have French words when you're nineteen, especially when it relates things. Anyway, I learned. But I think what got me over the line was just that I was willing to go above and beyond to make sure people had a good time. You know, would make sure that you know if they wanted to talk, great. If they didn't want to talk, great. 
walked them out into their cab, gave, you know, I think I gave somebody my umbrella um, and Dave's like, what happened? I, you came in with an umbrella. What happened? What, what, where, where, did someone take it? So like, no, no, I get, you know, that couple? Well, they've just been here. They've had a really bad day. I told him the whole life story. I gave them the umbrella and he's like, you gave them your umbrella. And I said, yeah. And I said, all right, you can stay another week despite <laughs> the fact that you probably just like completely fucked up that order. So, But there's something really interesting in that to me. And as someone, and you know, my role in Time Out, it's been around hospitality, never actually worked in it, but uh, experiences it a lot. And I guess the thing that, and it's a debate always, you know, between technical skill and then just what is actual hospitality actually, is it mm. just... And, I mean, there's a school of thought which I subscribe to and it is that that the, it's, the objective is to simply make someone feel better than when they came in or as a result of having had hospitality and that isn't necessarily mm. being able to pronounce the names of the wines correctly. Um, yeah. Yeah, one without the other. But I want to go back to something you were talking about and when you said tips because I think um, in your saucy political meets hospo career, um, we were listening to uh, you were telling me about one of the places that you worked in in um, Canberra and I think it was uh, a place that was frequented often by... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah by yeah, politicians. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Is, are these the kinds of tips that you're hoping to pick up or tips... Oh, of, God, no. I just wanted the cold, hard cash. I wanted to get the hell out of Canberra and go... Like, I, I saved up in one year. I saved up about seven grand in cash because um, I really... I just wanted to go back to Brazil. Yeah. And I literally would live off nothing and buy nothing and just, like, live off the generosity of the kitchen and leftovers and stash all of my money literally under my bed. Um, but, yeah, one of that, that was when I was working, like, both Nick and I. So when we were in Canberra there for about four years or so, and you you, you, could, you could, it's such a small place, but you could pretty much pick up. Like, I remember doing, you know, getting up at six, doing it, opening up the cafe, the street theatre cafe on campus, then going to class and then coming back and helping out with the lunchtime shift and then going back to class and then coming home, having a shower, going and doing um, dinner service from like 5.30 to 10.30 and then doing another bar, like another, like I just was working a lot. Like I was terrible at uni and just scraped through. But one, the community of food in Canberra at the time was great and one of the superstars was Sharif Kaya, who is the owner and chef or founding chef at, at Ottoman. And Ottoman, for anyone who has, like, done the Canberra circuit, is where when Parliament's sitting, that's where all the pollies go. And so that's also where they have their big, you know, liberal luncheons and all this sort of stuff. And one of my life's biggest regrets is that Twitter was not a thing when I was working the pass at Ottoman because the shit that you heard as a waitress in those private dining rooms was next level. Like I'd go to, um, you know, tutorials the next day at uni and some lecturer, you know, so he thought he knew everything and be sitting there and going, and the democratic principles of this section of the blah, blah, blah act means that, you know, blah, 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 and I'd sit there and go bullshit, guess what Philip Raddick said to Michelle Grattan at dinner last night and the whole class would be like, what? Because 
you know, I obviously hadn't done my reading. I was just gossiping. Um, but there was some pretty key political insights that you could glean. And, no, the politicians did not tip. And that's what drove me bonkers because they would happily drop, you know, a taxpayer or Polly's credit card on a $350 bottle of wine. But for some reason they would never leave a tip except... I've got to say, and they weren't politicians at the time, um, but Gough and Margaret Whitlam used to come into Atlantic and by this stage they were very, very, they were much older people, so they come in for lunch. And I remember just both of them just being not only the most kind-hearted, um, you know, just generous people with their time, like, you know, they were they were lovely. They'd, they'd sit there and be like, oh, so... What bring you know? What tell us your story? Like, and you know, it's Margaret and Gough Whitlam in Canberra. They're larger than life in Australian mm. consciousness. That like they're larger than life. Sure. Um, not only would they do that, but they'd leave you a couple of hundred at the end of the of lunch and be like, you know, go and have a good night, kids. You've worked really hard today. You know, so it was a pretty interesting insight into, um, I guess, what you thought things should be like and then the kind of grittier underbelly of how things actually work. And do you reckon, like, it's that, I guess, combination of real-life experience in hospitality and then studying at, uh, in ANU in, I guess, was largely a degree in politics and then bringing all that together, you know, in your... Is that, has that sort of led you to where you think you've come? Was that deliberate or has that been oh, no, unintended? No, or? no I think, I think the, the thing in... I think through hospitality in Canberra, it, like it certainly um, wore off the shine um, of what I thought I wanted to be. And I was like, oh, God, God help me if I ever become like any of these people. So, no, it wasn't... It's not as if, you know, it's so to, you know, sparked a a fire in me that I'm going to be like, oh, my God, I just, I just want to be like, you know, that Kim Beasley when I grew up. No. Um, it's probably the opposite of that. But I think what it did do is give you an insight into how things work. But more importantly, I think that time in Canberra um, and the job that I had organising events at one of the research schools was just learning how to get stuff done. And that, I think in any career, like in anything you want to do in your life, like hospitality is the best thing that you can ever do because you've got to figure it out. You've got to figure it out quick. You've got to work with other people. You've got to be creative. You've got to know what you're talking about. Like, And it's a high-pressure environment. And you go hard, you get it done, you get the service done, everybody chips in to clean up, pack up, and then you go home. You know what I mean? So it's, I think it's, I mean, yeah, I'm going to make my kid do it. So we'll just, you just mentioned then about uh, hospitality being a great way to learn how to get things done. And I think that's a little bit how we kind of connected a bit, uh, I think, it's fair to say. Uh, and um, a bit of a neat segue for me to ask you a little bit about the campaign Sydney Doesn't Suck, which has been, 
I guess the last couple of months work maybe I can't remember, not sure how long it was but uh, you know I remember getting a call from you going Mike Mike we've got to do something about these straws and um, I can't remember what my reaction was but like um, it was uh, sure I think Whatever, whatever you want to do, let's do it. Do you want to like, like yeah. talk a little bit about the campaign and how it came together and what it is and what it's about? Yeah, yeah. No, it all started Chingalings. Um, so Tosh is the the muse, I guess. Um, and I was just out one night for a friend's birthday and just noticed that they'd just pop, popped up a little sign and it was a bit cheeky and I was like, well, if you don't, if you know, if you really, 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 really need a straw, basically, we're not, we're not going to give you one. And I started having a chat to him at the bar. I'm like, that's really cool. Like, what made you do that? He's like, well, we just needed to do something, and but that's not all we've done. We're also like, and he was really proud. He's like, we've also gone. You know what? We don't need all these stupid paper serviettes. We're going to make our own cloth ones, and we've already started talking to our suppliers. So, it was, it, it's not my job to go and like fix everything, but sometimes when you're in a job like mine, you have a pretty good helicopter view of what what people are doing, and. Sometimes it's about just, like, connecting the dots. And so once I spoke to um, Tosh, I spoke to Paddy at the Gladstone, I'm like, is this the thing that you guys are dealing with and how are you dealing with it? And he said, well, for us, it's, yeah, like, I'm sick of all this crap, you know. And for them, it's a, it's simpler. They just put the straws behind the bar and they've phased out those, like, red, you know, college party cups. Um so there was a lot of people, but then there was also the element where they said, was like, well, has there been any pushback from the punters? And they were like, yeah, you know what? There's always an excuse. Like it might be something about lipstick or there's an expectation that people are entitled to this straw. And so I guess Sydney Doesn't Suck was about, it was really aimed more at punters, to be honest, because I spoke to you about it and it was like, well, how we know that people care about this, but how do we connect the dots between the venues who are doing something about it and the punters that are going there? And how do we shift expectations? And how do we remind people that, like, a thing, a plastic thing that you use for 10 seconds lasts forever and you just don't need it? Like, it's a bit of common sense. And I think having, you know, really bars and restaurants and venues are at the forefront of that cultural interaction. For the most part, they set the cultural mood and the cultural scene. So it was really just about wrapping that up into a thing and pushing it out so that everybody can own it. And that was kind of what it was all about. And, I mean, how have you received direct feedback on it? Like, my only feedback is really just going around and, not seeing straws in the yeah. venues that I go. And I suppose yeah. I'm a bit pointy in, in most of my travels, so it's not that unexpected. And I think that was my what I'd said to you when you'd call, like most of the venues I'm in, they've, they've sort of got rid of them some time back. But mm. it has been rewarding, at least for me, being out in venues, I guess, that uh, wouldn't be considered pointy end and, and, and seeing yeah. that changes. There been... Uh, has that been feedback to you? Have you seen it yourself? Is there, yeah, you... I mean, yeah, definitely. I think... Um, I think... Once It's like one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you see how dumb it is, you can't unsee how dumb it is. And so I think, yeah, what I've seen is sort of like just a shift where it's become a little bit like cringy if you see them. Like, oh, you know, you're not switched on. Um, And for, yeah, I think for more sophisticated venues, that has been happening over time. But it's when you hit up places like the ICC 
as part of the broader sustainability um, challenge or broader sustainability program that they're having because venues like the ICC and Opera House and when we were working with Solitaire Opera Bar, you're not talking about, you know, a couple of thousand here or there. The Opera Bar was going through 1.2 million a year. The whole Opera House precinct was responsible for 6 million straws a year. So if you're chopping that out, that's having real impact. And I think what we're also seeing is that the straws have been like a bit of a gateway drug for broader thinking about sustainability and staff are engaged with it, punters are engaged with it. So Yeah, well, I think I was going to ask you about that because when I was telling some of my mates about the elimination of plastic straws, they were like, really, Mike? There's bigger issues than plastic straws. And I said, well, name a few. And, um, and you know, of course, everyone can leap on some things that are more obvious. But I think uh, the thing that we both talked about as well, it's, it's really, its value is in making people stop and think. Sorry, there are other values, of course, but that I think is the why the reference, as you describe it, it's a gateway, a gateway drug to sustainability. I think it's really powerful. Mm. Um, but uh, and, and in that vein, where does where do we go from here? Have you is there things that you've got on your radar? Uh, and I, I sort of stick hospitality um, for the time being uh, mm. within that hospitality landscape. Are there things that you're thinking about? Um, yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the work that I did with the. With, for Sydney doesn't suck like it complements a lot of the work that the city of Sydney is doing with the sector broadly so the city in the city of Sydney you know the council are in a position to really get into the very unsexy stuff which is like where is all the where is all the waste in the city coming from where is all the energy being expended where is all the drinking water being used and next to uh, the commercial property sector accommodation and entertainment are the second biggest contributors. So the city have set up the sustainable destination partnerships, and there's some pretty tough targets um, that are that are, that have to be achieved as part of that. And I'm really confident that that work will keep going, and that's fantastic. There's like 40 odd partners, all the major players. Great, but I think the thing that I'm really interested in is what are the kind of what, how do we leverage creativity and collaboration to get some of the more interesting, innovative things happening? And from a council point of view, like I need to know where the sticky points are and where the frameworks are prohibitive because if I know where they are, they take a long time sometimes to change and they can be really frustrating. So I remember... Um, you know, when Yoast was trying to do mm. some amazing stuff down here in Melbourne around recycling and organic collection of waste in particular, food waste is a real problem. Um, part of the brothel silo project was these organic waste, you know, anaerobic digesters. But the council just hadn't caught up with that thinking. And so there's so many opportunities, I think, especially as we start to notice food precincts emerging that are not only great environmental opportunities to reduce waste, but you also save a shit ton of money. So, mm. you know, what we did, so the the equivalent of the Sustainable Destination Partnerships um, for the built environment was the Better Building Partnerships. Like, yay, you know, throw a party, they reduce heaps of emissions. But they're saving three, like $33 million a year in doing so. 
So it's about kind of like clicking into like what are the efficiencies that we can tap into um, and where are the laws just not making sense because sometimes the intent really like I just get mad when I say go to venues and it's like oh yeah we have to put the beer that's already in a glass bottle into a plastic bottle because we don't trust that our punters are not going to glass someone at a Nick Cave concert like come on Mm. like common sense doesn't always kick in and so yeah it's a challenge but yeah why not yeah and and there's that uh, and being specifics about I guess for the hospitality sector, it, the thing with the straws is that it's just an economic decision as much as anything. Uh, and then, but then similarly in that vein, I look at you know some of the practices we're starting to see. And just recently, we had um, uh, Josh Nyland on, who has I guess improved the yield out of the commonly accepted uh, ratio from fish from forty percent those 60% thrown away um, up to 100%. You know, it makes yeah. makes a lot of economic sense and you know, it's also made a lot of business sense ultimately. Like the guy's like, um, you know, being nominated for awards, I'm sure he's going to clean up something tonight. At, yeah. Um, but but uh, what about within venues? Like and just to cover off some of the easy ones or the easy ones, like I look at, you know, bottled water, um, yeah. you know, keep cups, you know, these sorts of things. Like yeah. um, any, any that are on your radar and are you working like or would you like, would you like people to kind of? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, the easy one, I mean, the easy one for me, like remember the sparkle cupcake phenomenon? Yeah, I do. Yeah, like bloody sparkle cupcakes have, I think they've got a lot to answer for because it wasn't until they decided that it was acceptable to put a bloody cupcake into a box, into a box, into a huge bag that the expectation of food packaging was like, it's like bloody, you don't need like a box and a box and a bag and a serviette and a fork and all this sort of stuff for a piece of food that you are literally about to devour. Like I think there's this sort of unfortunate kind of trad, not trad, trend fad. There's this like, there's this trend wavelength sometimes where somebody will do something different and it's seen as being like luxe or being seen as going above and beyond, but in a really superficial way. Yeah. And so, like, more packaging, more bells and whistles is is more. And it's just not. I think there's this real need to kind of shift away from, um, you know, the idea that if you, if you just give the customer more things, it's going to be a value add. Like, don't. I think the easiest win at the moment and, like, here's an idea for somebody with heaps more time than me. Like, go and, like, make a sort of a suite of reusable takeaway containers. Build them the size of the container way, like, takeaway containers that you currently stock. Do it so that the person serving knows what the quantities are, but then brand them so that they're freaking rad. And... I think that has two really good outcomes. One, it gives you an opportunity to interact with your customer and build kind of a conversation or a banter or a sense of community around your business. Two, you're going to save heaps of money on crappy plastic all over the place. And three, like, wouldn't you just brand the hell out of that thing? 
Like, wouldn't you just make it look sick and, you know, say, you know, on your 10th lunch, we're going to give you a bowl that you can keep bringing back. And sure, it's going to take a little while for people to get into the habit, but you do. Like, people get into habits when they've got a reason to. So, I mean, the enemy of sustainability is always convenience. And frankly, we just have to get over it. Um, I was talking with a friend about this the other night and she uh, was explaining to me how these days she takes her own containers from home when she's picking up olives from the deli or and and that it normally evokes this great reaction from staff. And they're like, oh, that's amazing that you're doing that. And then the minute that she leaves, they're like to the next customer, here's, here's yeah. your plastic container and here's a bag to go with it. It is, it is uh, this thing that... I, I don't know. It's the yeah. we, we get stuck in our patterns and of behaviour. I think, and I think yeah. you've you summed that well with convenience. The thing that um, I look at is the impact of home delivery services, especially when they're competing with each other. Yeah, and uh, you know the excess packaging that's associated with that. Uh, um, you know, because it's seen as good business ultimately to. Mm to brand something and then put a brand around it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but how did that work out for Woolworths and, and and Coles? Like inevitably I think there comes a point where people are just like, enough. We don't need any more crap in our lives, especially yeah. when you're in an urban environment. Like I just like every time there's an interaction where people are giving me more crap, I'm like, now I have to get rid of that. Like, yeah. And it but it's not just disappearing, it's going into landfill, it's going, you know, it's this stuff doesn't just, like, vanish. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I think, I mean, it's... But as cultural influencers, like, at the bloody coalface of telling people what is and isn't cool, like, hospitality have got such an amazing opportunity to be like, you know what, this is how we're going to roll, right? right now like if you can create a trend from something that's not even that enjoyable like bullet coffee um why can't you create a new standard for you know this is how we roll now and you know there's this great guy called bj fogg and he has this thing this like theory of change in it there are three components for a behavior to be adapted and this is like for business or for health or for whatever you need three things the first thing you need is motivation so you need to give people a good reason to do the thing that you want them to do the second thing is that you need um, an enabler so they have to to have the ability to do it so the example of oh hey you forgot your keep cup that's cool we've got a wall of mugs on the wall we're going to enable you to do the right thing again and then you need a trigger like a reminder to like reinforce and keep going oh you're awesome that's great like that's pretty simple and creating that kind of long-term change is something that we kind of all should be doing and it's a real point of departure I think for a lot of different um I mean, it's a, it's an opportunity, I think, to do things really differently. Yeah, and so. I think to sort of summarise some of what you've been saying and take us back to partly, you know, uh, the point of being here and in being nominated for this award really is about how uh, hospitality can be 
at the forefront of changing behaviours because it is so socially relevant. Yeah, well, it's where people come together. Like, there's nothing... I can't think of anything in anything in the world of anything that is of any significance that does not involve people either eating or drinking together, either before or after, like nothing. <laughs> there is nothing in the world um, that is more significant. Like it is so part of who we are culturally. It is part of everything that we do and has been from time immemorial. So... Um, it's, I think it, it, it potentially is where it can sort of start and end um, for a lot of things. I'm sailing away Set an open course for the virgin sea So you've just finished up a term as the Deputy Lord Mayor and then you're going to sail off into the sunset or you're hanging around on City Council? Oh, no, 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 no. Like, you don't... Yeah, you don't, you don't get off that easy. So <laughs> when you come... When you're elected as a councillor, you're in it for four years, unless you just, you know, something terrible happens. Um, but the Deputy Lord Mayoral role is elected by the council every year. So I was able to occupy that that role for twelve months, um, and so yeah, and so it's it's since been passed on to Linda Scott, who's another one of the councillors in so, the city of Sydney. And so, as in your role as councillor, you've been actively pushing changes to the DCP yeah. in Sydney. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a lot of our listeners? I guess have venues in Sydney and or looking at you know. Um, to go into hospitality in 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 that market. So, yeah. what's what's the what's going idiot sum, on? What's the idiot summary yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it took. I mean, it's it's probably worth explaining because it took Jess Scully and I a year to figure out ourselves. So we didn't, you know, we like we were on this campaign. Like I didn't expect to win. I did not expect to be a councillor at all. Um, but part of getting in on that was. Um, acknowledging that there was a real problem with nightlife and trying to figure out what we could or what we could and or couldn't do. Unfortunately, and I still get bailed up at this at parties all the time. It's like, why don't you fix the lockout laws? And I'm like, I wish, but my magic wand doesn't reach that far, unfortunately. Um, so the local council don't have the ability to uh, change state government legislation where they're kind we're kind of under their thumb for all intents and purposes. But when it comes to planning, what we figured out is there's this thing called the late night development control plan. And what that is is a thing that tells you from a planning point of view what can happen, how late and where. So when we uncovered this magical gift called the late night DCP, we pretty much did all we could to fast track that process happening um, as fast as we could. So to do that, we I, I wrote a, a notice of motion um, and put that to council and got that supported. And that basically means that that review process goes to the top of the priority list. And we also, and thanks to everybody who took the time to you know, fill out the survey, we managed to get about 10,000 people in Sydney to 
comment on that and say, you know, what what sort what sorts of things do you want to see this process involved? So it was a, it was the first round of consultation. That was really powerful because it it sent a very clear message to council staff and council and the state government that people were ready to reimagine what nightlife in Sydney could be. And it's not about, you know, this or that. It's not either or. It's a really complex layered system. And the point of the late night DCP is to set up what will be in what will what will Sydney be like in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. So we know that we've seen an increase of foot traffic to Newtown by 300%. Mm. Uh, we know that um, there are major growth zones in within the city of Sydney. So, for example, Green Square will have around 60,000 uh, new residents over the next five to ten years. Um, we know there will be 10,000 over at Ashmore. So it's there's things are shifting and we have a new population. But imagine you've got 60,000 new residents and the only place they can go out to is Newtown. Newtown's already at capacity. Though what we don't want to happen is another scenario where there's been a failure of of imagination really to think about how do we accommodate a lot of different people all having a good time together safely and so that's what the late night dcp review is about um it will it has gone out to consultation for the first round which Mm. is great and so another way of thinking about it is the map of fun for the city for the city and so what our planners have gone if they've understood what people have said and they're going to come up with a proposal for different late night trading zones there might be a new late night trading category and they'll start pinpointing where those locations would be so i suppose um, a very long-winded answer to your question if i were thinking about getting into hospitality right now i would really be thinking about the kinds of people who are living in the city, the kinds of people who are moving in, uh, what's a diverse range of offers and don't put all your eggs in the CBD King's Cross basket because, frankly, based on the consultation that we just did, I reckon that ship's probably sailed. I don't think, like, I don't think we're going to ever be able to restore the cross to what it was, which is sad. It'll be different, um, but it's more about thinking about what other places could be and then getting in at the ground level. But just a technical that. question, like because those areas are pretty like important and have been uh, well trafficked and I guess at some level at least have inf- some infrastructure in place. Yeah. Um, like is there is any of the work that you are doing or on the DCP related, does that improve the fortunes for people in those areas or...? Is there a way of changing their, their that well? We point? can't where where the where the lockouts currently apply. We can't revoke can't that or lift yeah. it. We can't yeah. do so. We're kind of trying. We're trying to work around it. So the other way of thinking about it is going. Well, the lockouts only apply to the cross and the CBD. Where don't they apply? Well, Newtown, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Where where could you create a new place where they don't apply? Yeah. Um. So that's sort of where our heads at. But it's um. I mean, it's the process and. There will be some kind of recommendation for the cross and we have to take everyone's viewpoints into account. So if the majority of people say, hey, you know what, we just like it just the way it is now, then either we need businesses and venues and the sector to come up and start really rallying and and campaigning for this or kind of accept that if you don't show up, you don't get a say. Um, And that's, I guess, what, like... Jeff Scully and I personally have been really trying to do is just to 
um, get or start weighing the scales a little bit when we talk to like, well, who, I guess starting to hear from people who are not just usual suspects because like, let's face it, like who, who either A knows and B cares mm. about, um, you know, consultation with the local council and the late night DCP review. Yeah. And the answer is you should care. Yeah. And, but we, it's our job to explain how to actually do that in a constructive way. Yeah. And what about those businesses that are in those areas? Like, um, do they, are they, do you feel like they're organised? Like, are they, uh, or they just sort of sitting there relatively passively hoping the world's going to change around them? No, I think, I mean, a lot of the work you've been doing with um, the small bars and everybody, no, I think everyone's been, I think, you know, I think everyone's, the, the narrative is starting to shift and I think the message is beginning to get across that if you want things to change, you kind of got to go out and do it yourself. Like you can't expect, you know, we don't all have the bloody fast line to Alan Jones to say, Al, can you get my bloody ad on the Opera House sales by, you know, having a crack at the Premier? Like normal people don't have that kind of magical power so unfortunately we just have to do things the hard way which is figure out and just play to our strengths which is our numbers and I think the other thing that worked really well with the straw campaign is that we were able to create a bit of content that we like I can't possibly go and talk to you know 100,000 kids who hang out on the weekend but it was a good enough piece of content that all the venues passed it out amongst their people and it was so nice and it just shows what can be achieved when we all come together and we have that collective impact we're a lot harder to ignore so yeah Yeah. I think the work you're doing with those guys is really important especially now yeah I think that from my perspective looking at it and you're quite right and in the sense of where and what the city can do and Mm. what it can't and I guess for those who are sort of following the work that I'm doing it's really been aimed at let's not waste too much time um, trying to convince everyone in the city of what they already know. We're all on the same page most often, but trying to take that voice to the New South Wales government. Yeah. And, and, uh, and a big part of that has been to try and organise, uh, get people organised, really. Yeah. And that's a process. It's a bit ongoing, but has a bit of groundswell. But I think the thing that, going back to the Sydney Doesn't Suck campaign and what I think personally about it and to be honest a little bit partly why I was so keen to jump on board and and just say well what can we do you know how fast can we make this thing happen and it was to almost like pressure test the systems the relationships the uh what would you call it um I guess spirit of the willing Mm. you know to to bring collective action like those types of organizations especially in those like traditional areas king's cross and Mm. um cbd you know well that's tough to work you need a good vision yeah hey like you actually need you know if people don't know why they're collaborating or why they're working together or what's in it for them then why would you like it's all just a bit flaky so i think um you know the success of sydney doesn't suck is because it was pretty simple and everybody could say yes um and it was kind of it had a momentum already but the real challenge with the lockouts is just you can't expect bloody government to have a vision creative people have to have a vision and people who work in hospitality 
um, and the arts and venues are really bloody creative. We're not they're not built like lawyers or politicians or you know policy makers. And thank God for that because how boring would the friggin' city be <laughs> if we if if no creative people had any influence. So I think the call to action is to really just don't let you know don't don't discount what influence and power you do have. Even if you're singing and go, oh, I just have a bar. It's like, no, you have a bar. Yeah. How many people come in your doors every single week? And how many people think you're cool? And how many people, you know, well, what's the community that surrounds you? And that's your power and influence. Yeah, and I think someone said it to me well, and I'll misquote it, but it's like, come polling day, every bar is an election booth, you know. And I think that that's the, the thing that uh, the work that I'm doing and why we're focusing so heavily on, uh, you know, those influential venues is that in that lead up to the election, uh, there's a way of, I guess, mobilising not only them but their audiences, which are mm. the audiences that populate, you know, Sydney and I think represent what Sydney's modern view ultimately. Yeah, well, will just be. like be just like you know, decide. Let's collectively decide what we want to be. Like we don't want to be a bunch of you know the days of the big beer barns and the dodgy deals and the the weird licensing and you know the violence and all that. Like that that's all in the past. And I'm really, I, it really frustrates me when it's all about oh, but you know one bad expose. Like it's just like come on, we're we're better than that, and we just haven't had the chance to prove it yet. So I think that's where the opportunity lies, and that's sort of where. Yeah, that's where my head's at, at least for the next two years on council. Yeah, yeah, and, and good luck with that. Um, Jess, we've got a few standard questions we like oh, yeah. to end each podcast with, yeah. so um, I'm going to roll throw those at you pretty quick fire, if you're yep. ready. Yep. Are you ready? Yeah. So, favourite book that you've recently read or podcast that you listen to? Oh, yours, Mike. Um, <laughs> Joe Rogan and Alan Atkinson, Europeans in Australia. Oh, yeah. Talks about the Europeans in Australia. What's Puts that you one? to sleep, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, 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 um, for, for listeners, uh, if this podcast doesn't put you to sleep, then there's another one for you. Um, what about a favourite album or artist uh, that you're listening to right now? Um, at the moment, we're listening to Krangbin a lot at home. So Krangbin means aeroplane or something in Thai, but they're this amazing... Um, Texan trio that it's like the woman who sings is hot just go to google and um type no go to youtube and type in k-h-r-u-a-n-g-b-i-n yeah great we'll link to that into the show notes uh um favorite drink right now um the yering station chardonnay (laughs) i see you've thought long and hard about that yeah Yeah. Yeah. um the one that's in your hand lovely um what about your favorite venue Oh, that wasn't on the that wasn't on the um, cheat sheet. Um, oh, don't hard. make me choose. Don't make me choose. I reckon at the moment. I mean, obviously Oxford Arts because of because I I really really like music, um, but I also love One Hundred and Seven because it's mm. such a multi. You know, you can have a night, you can have an arvo, you can do arty things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, big shout out to the Oxford Art Factory and the One Hundred and Seven. But like we are. Uh, I think um, we gave or we awarded 
Mark Gerber, uh, or Oxford Art Factory, the, the Legend Award um, at the Time Out Bar Awards last yeah. year or this year, whenever it was, but partly because of, you he's know... He's so what, committed, like, and yeah. he's a love, like... But also what the venue right. represents to me. Like, it's not... It's it, the last bastion it's not, of hope. <laughs> and it's never only ever been about, you know, what some people think, you know. It's um, the Oxford Art Factory, the name tells you what you need to know. Um, and this one's quite broad, but, like, and let's um, widen, in your case, out... Uh, the term industry here, but who in the industry are you most inspired by? And many of our guests just rattle off a couple of names, so feel free to... Oh, oh mate, it's really hard. Um, Yoast, for all of that, like, and he he works so hard to try and make it work mm. here in Melbourne, and it didn't work out, but he, and he had a shit time, but he kind of got up and he still continues to do cool things. Yoast, um, um, Tosh, obviously, the inspirational muse behind Sydney Doesn't Suck. Um, um, like it, there's so many people, like Luke Ashton and those guys, like just everyone really. Yeah. Um, you know, Jill Duplay has always been very um, in tune with things, Bruce Pascoe stuff on all this Indigenous foods, really interesting. Um, there's a really great project happening out of Sydney Uni called the Food Innovation Lab being led by Luke Craven. Okay. Clarence Slocky and Christian are setting up a new rooftop garden, you know, education experience at ATP. Um, yeah, like, there's a lot of cool stuff going in, but the, the the food innovation stuff at the moment is really exciting for me. And also I'm noticing some amazing stuff happening in Tassie just with pushing the culinary boundaries of food and this whole approach to local food economies and I guess um, acknowledging the interdependence between farmers, chefs, producers, mm. brewers, hospitality, tourism, art. It's such a amazingly dynamic and vibrant time in Tasmania right now. Good answer. Yeah, Strong thanks. answer. Thanks. Well, uh, Jess, thanks so much for your time and and all the work that you do both uh, in your capacity as councillor at the City of Sydney and thanks. outgoing Deputy Lord Mayor and, and really in respect of uh, Sydney Doesn't Suck, which I think and I hope in time becomes a good um, blueprint for how... Uh, social action, I guess, can be taken by the hospitality community and, and instigate real change. Um, it's been brilliant having you on and I wish you best of luck with the awards tonight. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. Let's win some stuff. So, Mike, I think the uh, question on everyone's lips is, did you win? Fuck yeah. Nice. <laughs> it was a good win uh, and justified, I think, Luke. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you're, you're a war-winning hospitality person. Now I've joined the ranks. I feel... Uh, it's about time. Yeah, um, Ten years giving them out and finally we won one. Yeah, correct. Well, mate, yeah, mate, very well deserved. And, and having now listened to the conversation um, with Jess, you know, it's it's a pretty amazing story how that actually came to be and, and, you know, just having a drink in a bar and then that becoming an award-winning initiative. I mean, what did you take out of the conversation with, with her? Yeah, I mean, the thing that I 
we've, we've, we've talked about this before and I'm always amazed and she reminded me of it is just how important hospitality is in giving you that skill of getting things done yeah it sounds trite but every service you do the best you can get it done come back tomorrow you know mm. and and it is, I think, a fundamental business skill which we look for in employees, yeah. in media, mm. as, a, as a result. So that's one of the big takeaways. And I think that uh, she's she's a, a weapon. There is no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, she's uniquely um, placed and has a great perspective on, I guess, what is the issue of our time, really, which is as we touched on sustainability. Mm. Yeah, right. Well, mate, uh, it was awesome to listen to. I, I, Felt like I missed out not being there, you know. She sounded um, full of energy and just, you know, it was a really great story. So um, hopefully the listeners enjoyed it. Yeah. And the other thing which uh, I, I want to do is actually give Fairfax a shout out because yeah. at, some, at some level, you know, some would say that we're a bit, uh, there's a bit of rivalry, but I think that increasingly publishers need to think about working together on a common cause. And mm. this is just a good thing to be doing so it was great for them to I guess leave any rivalry aside in that and in acknowledging uh, you know the work that was done so big thanks to the team over there and who have we got next week we've got uh, Jason Crawley Jason Crawley yeah. that will be uh, one for the ages I think <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that conversation yeah nice awesome right. good stuff